everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. I tell you what, one of the things I've enjoyed more than maybe any of our other podcasts is walking through these biblical books together. Um, We've done Isaiah, we've done Romans, and I'm kind of surprised. We've done Job. I'm kind of surprised we haven't hit a gospel yet. Yeah. And so what we wanted to do today was our first gospel. Of course, our goal over the next year or two is to go through every book of the Bible. But we want to do the Gospel of Mark today. And I think it's, it, we, we didn't talk about this before we picked it. We, we're picking a lot of this to, based on what we're teaching or what we're reading in our, our devotional times. But uh, it's really cool, I think, that we picked the Gospel of Mark first because, number one, it's probably the first gospel that's written. We'll talk about that in a minute. But secondly, it's probably the most overlooked of the gospels. It's, it's seen by a lot of people as the least significant. And one of the things we want to do is set the record straight on that. Uh, Mark is is a marvelous gospel for a lot of reasons, and it's unique in a lot of reasons. It's not like mm-hmm. any of the other gospels because of a lot of things that go on in it. So uh, to kick us off, we, we kind of have had a, a format that we like to follow, and the goal of it is that you would get that book of the Bible and read it, whether that's right. in concert with the podcast, read it and then listen, or whether this jump starts you to read it over the next couple of weeks, or if this is one of those things where you take notes and you go to the text and you follow along in your Bible while you're listening. Um, our goal is not just to talk about these books of the Bible because we like them. The goal is for us to read them and to be better equipped to read them. Right. So why don't we just kick off with the author. Tell us a little bit about who wrote this book and what we should know about them. Well, great question, and obviously, as most things about the Bible, there are various points of view. There are probably three different people who are nominated as having written the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to land for a variety of reasons, which we don't necessarily need to go in here, is I think it's very likely that uh, I would go with Eusebius, the early church historian from the early 4th century A.D., who preserved the tradition of the church and the word of mouth as it came along, that the Mark who wrote this gospel was John Mark, who's mentioned several times in the book of Acts and mentioned a couple of times at least in the letters of Paul, and that John Mark followed Peter. And according to Eusebius, when Peter would preach, when he would tell these stories about Jesus, the people begged Mark to write them down so that they could have a record of the things that Peter was preaching. So I, uh, my view is that this is the John Mark that we know from the New Testament and that he was writing down these various stories, these short, choppy stories that Peter was preaching. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I don't see any compelling reason why it wouldn't be John Mark. I mean, an issue that we are going to talk about multiple times especially as we get to the uh, disputed letters of Paul and then certain places in the Old Testament is there are a few legitimate places in the in the Bible where we don't know who wrote it and we actually don't have an authoritative tradition coming down to us about who wrote it we, we just we actually have no idea but in the places that there is a tradition uh, like the Gospel of Mark a pretty well-defined tradition mm-hmm. I don't see any reason to question that now from a scholarly standpoint it seems like um, you know the grant money or the dissertation topic is there for people who want to question things that have been virtually unquestioned for 2,000 years and I think there's probably some merit to that in certain cases but uh, this one is really not disputed John Mark mentioned in Acts, very tied into the apostolic community. It would have been, uh, it would have been likely that uh, Gospels would arise out of the Jerusalem church, out of the Jerusalem community, especially right. as the community began to spread. Uh-huh. And uh, from the people that we know of in, in the book of Acts, John Mark is a great person to do it. He was, was from Jerusalem, or at least lived in Jerusalem. He, we know that because his mom's house was one of the places that the early church gathered mm-hmm. in Jerusalem. He traveled with Paul and Barnabas, and we'll kind of talk about that in a minute. He uh, is, is traditionally said to have traveled with Peter. I mean, he, he was one of the major players in the early church, and uh, it makes a lot of sense that he would be the guy 
to write this. So I don't want to take a minute here as a sidebar and talk a little bit about what we know about John Mark from the Bible. The, probably for most of us, when we think of John Mark, we think of the story in Acts with with uh, his journey with Paul and Barnabas. Why don't you tell us what happened there? Yeah, so John Mark uh, takes off with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, and he goes along to help them and assist them. And, oh, about halfway through, he goes back to Jerusalem. Now, we're not told why he went back to Jerusalem, but he did. And so when time came for the second journey, and something you have to know that uh, the Bible talks about John Mark as being Barnabas's cousin. Now, that can mean mm-hmm. a lot of things in New Testament Greek. But uh, in any case, when they got ready to go again, Barnabas says, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul said, that guy's a quitter. You know, he, he quit on us halfway through. I'm not taking him. Barnabas and Paul got into such a sharp disagreement that they actually parted ways. Now, having said that, that probably worked out really well for the gospel because Paul took Silas and off he went on a second missionary journey, and Barnabas took John Mark and off he went to Cyprus to spread the word. So its effect was to have the word spread, but they did disagree about whether or not John Mark would be reliable. I would say that this resolved itself because we find in a couple of Paul's letters uh, references to John Mark. For example, in uh, 2 Timothy, he speaks to Timothy and says, Come to me quickly and bring Mark because he is very helpful to me in my ministry. So short version is there was a, a disagreement about John Mark's reliability, but it appears that later in his life, near the end of his life, Paul sees John Mark as, as a solid young preacher. Yeah, that's a story I just don't want to skip over because there's so much value to it for, for the way that we see our faith actually play out. Uh-huh. You know, in the, in the story in Acts, Paul and Barnabas aren't just traveling partners. Barnabas is, is the guy who introduced Paul to the Jerusalem church in the first place. He's the person who went and sought Paul out from Tarsus. He's the guy who mentored and discipled Paul. I mean, they were extremely close. Yes. And then when when uh, the time comes for them to go on their next journey, Barnabas wants to take Mark. And, you know, the two thoughts I have on this are, first, Thanksgiving and Christmas were going to be extremely awkward for Barnabas if he didn't take John Mark <laughs> because they were cousins. Exactly. So that was one of the things that you have to consider. But then secondly, the picture I get of Barnabas is he he believed in people when nobody else believed in them. Right. So when, when Paul was taken out of Jerusalem because people were threatening to kill him and he was virtually unknown to the disciples, he had, he had killed uh, or at least overseen the killing of Christians before this. So there was reason to be nervous. In that moment, Barnabas believed in Paul when nobody else did. And vouched the for him. unfortunate, yeah, yeah and, and, and put his reputation on the line for him. The unfortunate thing and this brings some humanity to Paul, is he didn't do the same thing for John Mark that Barnabas had done for him, right. but Barnabas did for John Mark what he had done for Paul. And so he takes him, and uh, that creates a really cool lesson for us in the way that Paul responded to that. Paul was wrong about John Mark, right. but he reconciled. And the, the verse in Second Timothy is kind of the end of the Reconciliation, But I just wanted to add, in, in Colossians, you get another piece mm-hmm. of this story. In chapter 4, verse 10, and the, these are the parts of the, the letters that are easy to skip, these endnote parts where Paul's just talking to different people, but there's a lot of great information here. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and then in, in English has it in parentheses, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Yes. So we see the gradual process of restoration between the relationship of Paul and John Mark. And that, that's just a cool story to have in the back of your mind about these Bible characters. Their lives actually looked a lot like our lives. Yeah, they did. And this is one of those ways to see it. If I could add one thing there, according to church tradition, and I can't vouch for this, but church tradition says that when Barnabas and John Mark went off to Cyprus and they began to preach in Cyprus that Barnabas became sick and died there. 
And so Mm -hmm. by the time Colossians is written, years later, say probably 60 uh, AD, you see John Mark moving back to Paul, giving him this news about his dearest of friends, and Paul taking John Mark and, uh, again, like you said, uh, kind of realizing his mistake and then investing in this young preacher, John Mark. It's a it's a really poignant story. Mm-hmm. So he's writing this gospel probably from travels with Peter. Obviously, he's already he's traveled with Paul as well. But uh, the church tradition is that he's reporting what Peter has told him and what Peter's told other people, and that he is writing to what what I would say is, is a group of Roman Christians, uh, probably Christians who spoke Latin, although the gospel is written in Greek. Mm-hmm. It's a Greco-Roman group of people. So, And that's kind of an interesting cultural thing that we probably don't have time to get off on, but the, the, the first century AD is a time of mixing for world empires. The Romans have conquered the known world. They've conquered the Greeks. They are the rulers. However, Greek culture is still the predominant cultural force in the world. So you had Romans, and Latin was certainly spoken in Rome, but Greek was really uh, the predominant language across the empire outside of Rome itself So because of Alexander the Great. So we have Mark writing in Greek. He's probably writing to people who who were Roman in their uh, disposition. They may have actually been in Rome. That's one of the, the mm-hmm. strong traditions is that, that that they were actually in Rome. Right. Uh, the two things I want to point out is the reason I think that is because of something called a Latinism. And you actually see this twice in the Gospel of Mark. In uh, I believe it's in chapter 12 when he introduces a currency. He uses uh-huh. the Greek word for... a a Hebrew currency, but then he explains it by converting it to a Latin currency. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing where you're saying, okay, these people probably either speak Latin or are are Roman because they don't understand um, the Hebrew customs and they don't understand the Greek term for it. Secondly, when he describes Pilate's governmental headquarters in Jerusalem, and he's describing the architecture of it. He he converts the terms into Latin terms. Right. So uh, that's another indication that he's he's accommodating to an audience who's probably Roman. Uh, the the other thing I want to mention is if this is a record of Peter's travels, the, the gospel actually takes on a bit of Peter's character. Mm-hmm. Now, there's nothing in the gospel itself that would lead us to believe that these are Peter's stories. There's, there's no moment where uh, we get a story about Peter that kind of makes him the star, something like we do in John, where right. John is highlighting his own his own story and his own discipleship. But <laughs> one of the things that's interesting about Mark, and you see this more clearly if you read it in Greek. I was having a conversation with a guy last week who just started reading the New Testament in Greek, and he's reading the Gospel of Mark, and, mm-hmm. and without fail... If you ask somebody who's reading the Gospel of Mark what what a unique feature of it is, the first thing they're going to notice is that uh, you see this little conjunction euthus <laughs> everywhere, everywhere in Mark. I mean, it's 50 times or something it's in there, and it's a connector word that means immediately. Uh-huh. Now, in narrative, there's some discussion as to whether it actually means that or if it's just a figure of speech. But uh, the, the Gospel says immediately... All the time. And it's just mm-hmm. so perfect because you can almost see Peter telling a story that way. It yeah. reads like a movie script. And then immediately we went and did this. And then after that we did this. And immediately we yeah. did this. The character of the language is reminiscent of the way that we, Very we kind of see Peter. Yeah, it fits. It fits really well. Uh-huh. So uh, any other features you want to point out as far as audience or date or situation that the book was written? Uh, no, the only thing is, I mean, nobody knows exactly when it's written, but I think that according to Eusebius, particularly because of where he places it in his work, I think this could be as early as the 40s, but I think most people date it into the 50s or 60s. And consequently, that would make it, date-wise, probably the earliest 
of the four Gospels. There are other reasons to think that, but uh, I, I think it's fairly early. I think it really is, and it reads as like it's an authentic transcription of stories that are being told. I, when I was teaching this book, I said it this way. If you just wrote down the main point of the sermon every Sunday in your church, and then you just put that into a book, it would read a little bit like the Gospel of Mark. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. As I, I want to touch for a minute on the synoptic Gospels what we mean by the synoptics, and maybe a good route into that would be if you would explain why people think that Mark is the first gospel and how that kind of leads into the synoptic gospels, the synoptic problem, etc. Yes, well, just a short version of that is you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they are called synoptic gospels. The word synoptic means to basically approach things or see things the same way. And when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you realize that as opposed to the Gospel of John, they do seem to have a different tone and a different purpose, perhaps, and they go about it maybe a little more historically, and I use that word carefully, but the way we would think of is kind of moving through Jesus' life. And so those three Gospels are called the synoptic Gospels, and that they approach things about the same. Now, Mark is the shortest, and Mark percentage-wise, the stories that are in Mark are largely also in Matthew and Luke. Both Matthew and Luke have stories and some material that is not in Mark. Let me pause here for a second. This is a literary analysis. It doesn't really take into account that the fact that most of Mark is in Matthew and Luke could be because the Holy Spirit wants to record these very same stories. But if you look at it from a historical point of view, it looks like the Mark tradition and the Mark recording is older and was incorporated into Matthew and Luke's work. In other words, the implication is perhaps they had a copy of the Gospel of Mark as they were writing their Gospels. So the fact that you see so much of Mark's material show up in Matthew and Luke is, uh, seems to argue for its precedence in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ultimately it comes down to you see almost verbatim quotes of Mark in Matthew and Luke. In fact, big portions are the same. Um, and so obviously that can go one of two directions. Is, is Are Matthew and Luke quoting Mark, or is Mark quoting Matthew and or Luke? Uh-huh. It's, you know, some people in the early church thought that Matthew was the first gospel written. Right. Yes. And there are those that argue that the literary dependence actually goes the other way. Mm-hmm. But I think the decision is made along this criteria. Is it more likely that Matthew and Luke read Mark, had a copy of Mark, wrote and expanded on it? And in some places, Luke especially corrects Mark's grammar right. and uh, <laughs> uses some different word choices and uh-huh. stuff. So is it more likely that they're expanding and correcting or is it more likely that Mark is shortening and summarizing right. either Matthew and or Luke? And most people have decided that it's it's probably likely that Mark is the first and the other Gospels expand on it. Does it make a huge difference when you read it? No, but that's something that you should know about the Gospel itself. The synoptics all present... You did a great job summarizing that. They present a, a similar vantage point on the stories. They share a lot of material. It's easy to tell what a synoptic is and isn't when you read something like Mark and then you read something like John. They could not be more different. Um, And so John's not a synoptic gospel. The synoptic uh, problem that, that we encounter is, should we try to reconcile the gospels or not? And I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but I want to say this. Each gospel presents a vantage point of Jesus. Each one is inspired by God, and each one is valuable for the unique contributions that it makes Mm -hmm. in the biblical canon. And Mark, of all the gospels, probably gets short-sold the most as being the plain, vanilla, skeleton sketch of the gospel events. But actually, Mark has a lot to bring that none of the other Gospels bring to the table. Mm -hmm. The the way that Mark is written, the theological uh, underpinnings in Mark, the unique things that he reports are really important. And so I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Mark and why it's special in its own right as a Gospel. 
Right. So the first thing we should mention is what are the things that Mark mentions that the other Gospels do not mention? And, they, and there are a few of these, but I want to point out the most interesting of, of the group, and there's two of them. Mm-hmm. In chapter 14 of Mark, this is maybe the most famous unique passage in Mark. It's called the naked man in Mark chapter 14, verse 51 and 52. So just to give a little context, this is during the arrest of Jesus. This is before he goes to the council and the high priest. You get this random interlude in verse 51. It says, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloak about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Never to be now, heard you read from this again. Yeah. <laughs> and say, what in the world is this? Yeah. And there are people that speculate that uh, this is an uh, image of the burial cloth or something like that. And th- mm-hmm. there may be something there. A lot of people think that this is a little autobiographical cameo that Mark, Mark makes yeah. in his own gospel. And we don't know whether or not that's true. I think it's kind of fun if you if you read it like it is true. The because Mark probably would have been in Jerusalem at this time. Uh-huh. So it's it's likely it could have been him. But that's kind of a weird eccentricity of, of Mark is he's he's the only one that mentions that. Right. Secondly, and this is helpful in the discussion about the audience, in chapter 15, verse 21, this is when Jesus is headed to be crucified. It says, And then they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. And then he makes this little aside the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And most commentators believe that wherever Mark was written to, whether that's Rome or somewhere else, that actually Simon of Cyrene's children, Alexander and Rufus, are members of the congregation. Uh So that's why he he has this aside. Because otherwise, why would it matter that he mentions what his two kids' names are? But I I think it's likely that the reason he includes this is because the people who are hearing this gospel would have known Alexander and Rufus. Uh They would have been eyewitnesses to this. And so he mentions them in the gospel. And again, this is the only time you get a mention like that in the gospels uh, of an event or of these two people. So that, those are two unique portions of, of Mark. What sticks out to you about Mark that's not shared in the other Gospels? Well, that's a good question. A uh, couple of things. One is just the way it's presented. It doesn't appear to have much editing in the sense that when you read it, you it, it feels a little staccato, like story, 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 story. And while these have been arranged into at least some reasonable uh, time order, they don't appear to have been edited. You know, they don't have segues. They don't have a softening. It really does lend some credence to me personally that Eusebius is probably right. This is basically this story of uh, Jesus calling Levi or the story of uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You know, these various things that happened were stories Peter would tell and then expound on what does this mean for us. It, it really lends credence to it because of the way it's written. It doesn't appear to be edited very much. The second thing that stands out to me uh, a little bit is, and I'd love to get your take on this, but in chapter 8, 9, and 10, in each of those three chapters, Jesus begins to tell his disciples what is going to happen to him? And he's very plain. For example, in 8.31, Jesus began to teach them, the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly to them. In fact, in chapter 8, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him like, hey, you can't talk like this. We've got big hopes for you. And then again in chapter 9, and then in chapter 10, a third time, Jesus is very straightforward with his disciples. And I don't, uh, those those may be in the other Gospels. It never hit me in the other Gospels. But when I read Mark, the extent to which he went to be plain and straightforward with them, and the extent to which they just could not really process that. So this gets into the outline of Mark, the unique outline of Mark, whereas the other Gospels, they, they all have their own 
organization. You look at Matthew. Matthew is organized around five long discourses. John, a lot of people argue, is organized like a trial. Um, Book of Signs, Book of Glory. We'll talk about those when we get there. Mark has a really unique organization, and it's foreign to the way that we typically read books. So Mark is organized in what's called a chiasm. Chiasms are everywhere in the Bible. I think some people get a little chiasm crazy looking for chiasms everywhere, but they, they really are everywhere in the Bible. And what a chiasm is, it's called that because of the Greek letter chi, which is an X. And uh, the, the book reads like a set of brackets. So you have something at the beginning. You should expect something like that to happen at the end. You move in. And, and uh, you, you can see the way the X goes to a point in the middle and then comes back out. This is the way that the Gospel of Mark is organized. So you can tell this because the opening part of the chiasm, this is what's called an inclusio, mm-hmm. is in the first chapter when, when Jesus is baptized, it says that the sky splits open. That's the Greek word mm-hmm. schizo where we get the English word schism, and God speaks into creation. He comes down upon Jesus. We read in the other Gospels. And then at the end of the Gospel, in chapter 15, when Jesus breathes his last on the cross, it tells us that the temple curtain actually splits. It, again, schizos mm-hmm. into, and the presence of God, then we, we infer from the reading, the presence of God actually comes out from the temple into fill the entire earth. So that's our tip off that this is a chiasm. And as you move in, you can see this everywhere that, that, uh, when you have an opening bracket later, you have a closing bracket. And what you've pointed to is the climax. It's the middle portion of the chiasm. So the way that this works is in, in this kind of organization, the end is not the climax of the story. The middle is the most important of the story. So in in Mark, what we get is a bookend in the middle of stories of healing two blind men. So the first one is in chapter 8, 22 through 26. He heals a blind man at Bethesda or at Bethsaida. And then the second one is when he heals blind Bartimaeus, which is in chapter 10, uh, verse 46 through 52. So those are bookends on the middle portion, the most important portion of the the Gospel of Mark. And the turning point is exactly what you said, that the center of the entire book is in chapter 9, starting in verse 2, where Jesus reveals uh, his transfigured self, Mm -hmm. and we get the confessions around that, that uh, he is the Christ, Right. So after that, we have this bold proclamation of who he is as he heads towards the cross. And uh, the entire book is is centered around this experience that they have up on the mountain. So uh, one of the ways that we know that is in the theme of Mark is summarized in chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mm-hmm. In the middle, this is in chapter 9. Uh, starting in verse 6, when Moses and Elijah show up, uh, Peter, as is typical of Peter, doesn't know what to say, so he says something dumb. (laughs) And uh, he says, let's just make three tents and stay here. And it it even says here, and this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek almost, as if Peter was the one telling this story. Uh, It says, because he didn't know what to say, because he was terrified. (laughs) And a cloud came over and overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Yes. And from that point on, his speech is different in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, at, the end of, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, obviously we have the crucifixion, and uh, you know, Mark, Mark tells it pretty much like the other, other authors. We have the insignia above the cross that says, the king of the Jews. But then we also have uh, the mocking and then the declaration in chapter 1532, the Christ, the king of Israel, who's been crucified. Well, at the very end, we get a Gentile, actually, a centurion in verse 39, who says, truly this man 
was the Son of God. So as you can see, this is just a little introduction to it. The entire gospel revolves around proving this claim that he is the Son of God. Right. And they say it at the beginning. Mark says it. They say it at the end. A Gentile says it. And in the middle, God says God it says on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right. So that, that's the overall structure of the book. And that structure is unique to Mark. No, none of the other gospels are arranged that way. Yes, and if you've got a, a, uh, an audience who was hearing this primarily, because they were, our standard mode of reading the book of Mark is reading the book of Mark. Their standard mode would have been hearing the book of Mark because they couldn't afford a copy. This would be stuff they would hear, you know, in their worship services, etc. And that kind of structure helps you to organize it in your mind and help you to remember it, the idea of the brackets, the idea of the uh, basically focal point in chapter 9 and then branching back out, the idea of Son of God in chapter 1 and chapter 9 and chapter 15. I mean, it, it really is a brilliant way to communicate the story. And so sometimes mm-hmm. we look at Mark and we say, wow, this, is, uh, this seems very, very primitive. You know, there's not a lot of editing, but actually there's some underlying beauty to this. Yeah. If we were going to paint with a broad brush in the Gospels, Matthew is proving who Jesus was because of what he fulfilled from the Old Testament. Uh John is proving who Jesus was because of what he said Mm -hmm. in the seven I am statements and and all of that. Luke is proving who Jesus was because of who he actually was as as a person and as the Son of God. Mark is proving who Jesus was because of what he did. So we see a lot of action in the Gospel of Mark, especially when it comes to miracles. He has the most miracles per verse or per word of the Gospels. He has eight healings, one resurrection from the dead, uh, not Jesus' resurrection from the dead, but um, another person, four exorcisms, and five natural miracles coming up to uh, more miraculous instances than he has chapters in his book. Yeah, I wrote down but, that uh, the miracles, when you start reading it, you immediately realize, just in the first four chapters, oh my goodness, Mark is taking pains to tell me about all these healings and all these miracles. And you quickly realize that the density of miracles related to teaching is very high in Mark. Like you said, he wants to tell you what Jesus did. Right, you don't get a ton of teaching in Mark. You get some important things that Jesus says, but Jesus doesn't actually talk very much in Mark especially compared to something like Matthew or or John. Instead, you get Jesus' action is the driving point in who Mark is talking about Jesus Mm -hmm. being and and proving who he is. Now, maybe maybe, uh, the most helpful thing we could do in the next couple of minutes is, is address two of the more difficult issues with the Gospel of Mark. The first one being the ending of the Gospel of Mark. Mm -hmm. So frame that up for us. Well, that's a great question. You have the shorter and longer ending of Mark, and in almost every modern English Bible, after chapter 16, after the 8th verse, which basically is the discovery of the empty tomb, from uh, from verse 9 on is you'll see a note that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And so these have been organized in various ways, but basically there's material there that doesn't appear to be original to the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I'll stop there and let you comment, but I also want to comment on a couple of very unique and unusual things that are in this ending. Because your first thought might be, well, that's fine if he goes on and talks about the uh, appearing to the disciples, which he does, and he goes on and talks about a great commission, in other words, commissioning them, that's fine. In other words, is there any harm done here? But there actually are a few things that are said here that are very unique to that longer ending of Mark. So what have I missed here? Well, no, I think you framed it up really well. The the it's a little bit startling when you're finishing Mark and all of a sudden in your Bible you see a, a note. Some of the earliest manuscripts don't include sixteen nine through twenty, or it's in brackets, or there's a footnote or something like that. That can be a little disconcerting. Uh, my question has always been: since that's the case, and the scholarship on this is pretty good, 
why do they continue to print these verses in the main text of the Bible? I think if I had it my way, I would put the entire thing in a footnote just because they're not in the earliest manuscripts. I don't think that 9 through 20 is authentic to the end of Mark. I think that for textual reasons and I think that for theological reasons uh, about the way that the book is constructed. But, but regardless, the, the earliest manuscript, and, and manuscript tradition is, is tricky, and I certainly am not a, a textual critic, and, and, and you aren't either, but, but the, the manuscript evidence is pretty clear that mm-hmm. this ending doesn't appear in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts at the end of Mark. Now, there's also a second ending, a shorter ending, that's mm-hmm. just a sentence or two, that appears sometimes before the longer ending, sometimes after the longer ending, uh, and it's probably not authentic to the original as well. Right. So, uh, you know, the thing that the thing that's probably most remarkable though is what the longer ending actually says in the Gospel of Mark. So maybe you want to talk about that. Yeah, I do. Uh, but I do understand, by the way, why that people were tempted to do something at the end of Mark because if you just read. 16, 1 through 8, it ends with, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing because they were afraid. Boom, it ends. That's an unsatisfactory ending for people. So I can certainly understand why the shorter ending was tacked on to just sort of close this thing out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. But the longer ending... It does ending, make some sense. Yeah, it makes a little bit of sense. The longer ending, and maybe one of the answers to your question of why they still print this here, even with such a bold point to make, you know, let the reader know that this does not appear to have been authentic, is some of the things that people have taken from this. For example, I became a Christian in the Church of Christ, and I'm, I'm not indicting all people who are in Church of Christ, but in a little Church of Christ in a little town in Kentucky... Uh, and one of the doctrines at that time was that baptism was essential for salvation. I mean, I think that still is, but I just want to locate this in my own experience. And Mark sixteen sixteen, he that believeth and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned, was a go-to critical verse upon which that doctrine stood. It's not the only one, but it was the one that everybody memorized because that was key. And then to come along and say, well, you know what, actually, that's probably not authentic, is, is going to cause more disturbance than maybe it's worth. Again, I, I, can't, hmm. I can't pretend why the publishers of the Bible do that instead of, like you said, putting it in as a long footnote. But there are people who do rely on some of these things. The second thing, and this one's even stranger, is in verse 17 it says, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new languages, new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Well, uh, growing up in Kentucky, kind of the center of Kentucky and definitely a redneck, For example, I had a friend in high school who would invite me to his church sometime, and they were snake-handling Baptists. And what that meant was is they were so devout, and I'm not here to make fun of them by any means, they so believed that verse, they thought that if their faith was indeed devout, they would be able to pick up a serpent, poisonous serpent, and not be bitten, or if they were, not to die. And if they drank poison they would not die. Now, we may look at that and say, wow, that's really a a misunderstanding. But it was something that was a big deal in a number of churches. They held that Mm -hmm. to be true. So I don't know if that sheds any light on whether, you know, why these things are printed, still printed in your Bible. But I do have firsthand experience that people took it quite seriously. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the, the picking up serpents, drinking poison, um, while I would never recommend, and I don't think that that's uh, something that God wants us to do, mm-hmm. you obviously don't want to disparage the people who believe that God can keep you from being killed by a by a serpent. I, right. mean, I, th- I think that's true. But uh, overall, I would say the the impact of the end of Mark is either negative with things like that, right. or it's redundant. There's nothing in the right. Gospel of Mark that you can't get somewhere else in the Bible, or if you're getting what you're getting 
and the only place you can get it is the end of the Gospel of Mark, yeah. you probably should reevaluate uh, exactly. why, uh, yeah, that's why, a, why you're doing a that. A thin foundation for any doctrine to pull it out of one verse, or in this case, to pull it out of one place that's questionable. Right. Yeah. Not, not a smart way to read and interpret the Bible, but uh, a reality for sure in the way that the Bible has been read. Yeah. The, uh, the, so the longer ending doesn't bother me. I think where we'll really get into this is when we do the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. There is uh, what, what a lot of people, probably their favorite story in the Bible, in, in the Gospel of John, is also in brackets. And so we'll just leave it at a cliffhanger there until we do the Gospel of John uh, and talk about that. But we'll say some of the same things, but it's, it's, uh, it's not as cut and dried because the story is so dear to a lot of people. And so we'll talk about that when we get there. Yeah, and I just have to warn you, I have an emotional attachment to that story, and so I'm going to have uh-huh. a really, I'm going to have a really different opinion on that one than I do Mark. But we're we're at least in tune here on Mark that verses nine through twenty are are likely not authentic, and one certainly shouldn't build a theology on them. Yes, definitely. You know, the, the so the second thing though that's troubling about the Gospel of Mark, and you realize this right when you begin reading it, is what scholars call the messianic secret. So the messianic secret is that through the gospel of Mark, particularly the first half of the gospel of Mark, Jesus, for some reason, keeps telling people not to talk about what he's doing, not to talk about who he is, not to spread the news. That seems kind of counterintuitive when you first read the gospel of Mark. Why do you think he does that? Well, this is conjecture on my part, uh, I'm not sure I have a good definitive answer for you, but one of the things you see really early in the Gospel of Mark, I mean, as in in the early portion of the book, is you realize very quickly that Jesus is not able to go anywhere without being completely mobbed. You see the story Mm -hmm. in chapter 1, verse 40, where he cleanses the leper. It's a poignant, powerful story of reaching out and and uh, you know, touching him, but then he sternly charges him, like you said, to to see that you say nothing to anyone. Just go show yourself to the priest, do what you're supposed to do. But the leper went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And then afterwards, as you go through it, you'll see how often he's crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee and how often he is teaching from a boat. So I'm not sure this is a satisfactory answer, but I think, you know, in John, he says it this way. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't want to do the miracle at Cana, and he says, my hour is not yet come. And so I mm-hmm. believe that Jesus is, it doesn't serve his purpose to be this mobbed early in his mission, because his mission was to go from village to village bringing the good news that the kingdom of God is near. So it seemed to me that it was counterproductive to him to do that. But I'm not sure that's a great answer. It's just the one that jumps out to me from the text. What are your thoughts? No, I think that's a good I think that's a good answer. And the de facto answer that we have to come to is Jesus talks a lot, especially in the Gospel of John, about when his time has come. Mm-hmm. So that we see there, there are a lot of instances where Jesus wants to do something. He wants to teach something, demonstrate something, do something before he goes to the cross. And so in, in some ways he is limiting and he is, he is controlling the timetable of his life and death and resurrection to the right appointed time right. by telling people not to spread. I think that's probably the safest, most definitive answer that I would give. Uh, there's another thing I think is important, and that is how the word, so the, the last word in Mark, in our translations, the, the end of Mark says they were very afraid, if we're going with the shorter, shorter ending. The ESV says they said nothing to anyone for they were very afraid. Now, in the Greek, the last word is the word for for, just because that word can't be the first word in a phrase. But the, the last word really is fear, to fear. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a participle. And so if you look at the way that that word is used in the rest of the Gospel of Mark, it's, it, it does shed some light on this. Huh. The word 
fear is used all through the Gospel of Mark. I mean, it's used probably a dozen times in Mark. It, it starts in chapter 5. It ends with the second to last word of the gospel. And one of the themes that you can ascertain if you look up all the uses of of the word fear is Jesus has an effect on people of making them very afraid when he teaches, when he does miracles. The Pharisees are afraid of him. The disciples are afraid of him. Uh, All kinds of characters. The demons are afraid of him because of what he's doing. And you get this trend going throughout the gospel of People are afraid, but then they have a choice of what they're going to do about it. So the the Pharisees, for example, are afraid because of his power and because of what he's doing. So they decide they're going to kill him. The demons are afraid of him, so they they ask him to leave and to depart uh-huh. uh, in the story in chapter 5. The disciples are afraid, and they decide to stick with him. Right. And at the end of the gospel, we basically get a rhetorical question, and that is... The people there were afraid, and then they had a choice to make. And you know what choice they made. So it, even though there isn't the ascension in Mark, it's, it's kind of puzzling that we don't have any of the appearances after Jesus is, is raised in Mark. Um, but the people would have known what happened. This right. isn't, the, this isn't uh, written so long after the fact that people don't know what happened. They know what happened. They know what these people chose to do. And so Mark is posing almost a rhetorical question to us saying, the news is out. What are you going to do? Yeah, that's a- How are you going to respond to the fear that comes with confronting the living God, confronting this, this person who... The winds and the waves obey him. The demons obey him. Sicknesses obey him. He's, he's given you all these miraculous accounts of what Jesus is able to do. And when you come into contact with that, it's very fearful. But you have an option as to how you're going to respond to that. So thematically, that's one of the things I would say about the Messianic secret is uh, the people are told not to tell. They're afraid. Then you get to the end of this book and um, the word is out. And the question is, what are you going to do with what Mark has just written. That's a great point. And, you know, it may be a little bit of the stimulus for that longer ending because when verse 8 of chapter 16 ends with, for they were afraid, it's actually talking about, you go back to verse 1, chapter 16, Mary Magdalene and another Mary are going to bring spices to uh, anoint Jesus' body. And so when they saw the angel in the empty tomb, it's they, those ladies, were afraid. And now the longer ending, which is probably not authentic, but may give us a motivation, it says, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him. And so it's like mm-hmm. you were saying, you, you get the question of, well, what are you going to do with your fear? Well, you're right. They knew what happened. And here, the uh, whoever added this, the scribe, knew that she didn't keep quiet. She went out and told everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the theme, we, don't, we can't get into this completely, but the theme of acceptance and rejection in the Gospel of Mark is, mm-hmm. is really interesting. Beginning in chapter 5 with... Gentiles, actually. the When you see the story of the demoniac in, in the garrison, the people respond to what Jesus did with fear, and they actually beg him, it says in 517, yeah. they to beg leave. Jesus to leave yeah. because they're afraid of what happened. And uh, all through the Gospel of Mark, he's very interested in what the acts of Jesus evoke in a response of people around him. And so thematically, even, I would, I would argue that uh, we should take into account why he ends this gospel talking about fear. And right. in some ways it makes sense with a lot of the other stuff that he's been doing uh, narratively and thematically through his gospel. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. You know, one of the things there, just for our listeners, is, uh, and you just illustrated this beautifully, is the why the Bible can be read over and over and you just peel layer after layer of meaning. I've read the Gospel of Mark, gosh, so many times I I can't even count. And yet, as you talk about it, seeing it as a whole, you know, as you become familiar with it, sometimes you go, oh, well, I've read that story. I know, but read it again. Because sometimes you see the picture and you begin to sense this messianic secret and you begin to see the patterns. There's just layer after layer of meaning. And I hope that this discussion has uh, really got you fired up to go read the Gospel of Mark again. 
Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, as a closing, uh, what's your favorite portion of Mark, either to teach as far as the impact it's had on you, just to read? What, what's, what's kind of your parting thought on the Gospel of Mark? Well, uh, next week I'm going to teach on one of his miracles, and it's, it's, I probably wrestled with this and thought about this one as much as any. Uh, I mean, obviously you've got the sower, you've got, I mean, there's so many good things here. But in chapter 3 it opens with Jesus going into a synagogue, and there was a man there with a crippled hand. And so they were watching Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him. In other words, put him in a bind here. And so he tells the man, come here, and, he, and then he asks everybody, he looks around, he says, is it lawful to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? But they were silent. I want to tell you that that reminds me of uh, 850 years earlier when Elijah asked the people, who's God, Baal or God? And they were silent. Mm-hmm. But these people were silent. And it says Jesus looked around at them with anger, and he was grieved by the hardness of their hearts. And, of course, he goes on and heals him. And there's just something about that story that convicts me over and over again. Mm-hmm. How about you? What are, what are one of your favorites here? I, there's a lot of stories in Mark I love. I like to teach the gospel of Mark for a couple of reasons. I think it's just a great a great gospel. It's good. It's fun to teach. And then secondly, you don't have to spend nine years teaching <laughs> through it exegetically like you do uh, Matthew and Luke. Yeah. You can get through it relatively quickly. But uh, probably my favorite, I love the story in Mark chapter 5. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. But uh, I I, want to end by talking about the stories of the two blind men. So in chapter 8, you get a story of a blind man. And it's a weird story because Jesus actually heals him in stages. So he... uh, he, lays his, he spits and he lays his hands on his eyes and he says, do you see anything? And the guy says, I see men, but they look like trees walking, which you've got to wonder here. And we don't even have time to go into this, but he's been blind. How does he know what trees look like? And uh, it's just a weird story all around. Uh-huh. Jesus lays his hands on him again and he opens his eyes and his sight was restored. Then you, you go through, you get the transfiguration, you get the confession from Peter you get to the end of chapter 10, and we meet Bartimaeus. Now the blind man has a name. Mm-hmm. Now he is sitting on the roadside. He's crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And uh, the people say, hey, he's calling you. Get up. And so he throws off his cloak. He springs up. He comes to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus says to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. The transition between those stories, as we talked about earlier, they're bookends for the middle theme of of the book, which is the disclosure of who Jesus is. But you also go from a two-stage miracle to a one-stage miracle. You have a transition of discipleship, and then you have the immediate freedom of discipleship. In some ways, Bartimaeus is the archetypal disciple in the Gospel of Mark. He's held up as the person who responds to Jesus best. He's blind. He's a beggar. He knows that Jesus is his only hope. Yeah. He throws off his cloak, and immediately Jesus makes him well. I like that those stories capture that discipleship is both immediate and a long process. Right. There are moments when Jesus heals us in stages, and there are moments when Jesus heals us in an instant. But no matter who we are, in light of who Jesus is, we should respond with the eagerness and the faith of Bartimaeus. I've always loved that portion of the gospel. Amen. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.